0: Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Soundprints for the week of June 4, 2023. Registration is still open for the ACB National Convention. It is important to register whether you participate in the virtual activities, in the in-person programming, in Schaumburg, or in both. This year, ACB is electing officers, and the Candidates Forum is on June 14 on Zoom and ACB Media. The Summer Auction is on Saturday, June 17, and the convention officially opens on Monday, June 19. Resolutions will be discussed and debated at 7 p.m. Central Time on June 20 and 21, and Constitution and Bylaws Amendments will be the Order of Business at 7 p.m. Central on June 22. There will be virtual exhibits from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central on June 21, special interest affiliate meetings, tech sessions and programs on many different topics, and fun-filled events throughout the day and evening on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, June 22, 23, and 24. The hybrid convention week, with tours, exhibits, meetings, and programs, and social events, kicks off on Friday, June 30, in Schaumburg, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, and runs through Friday, July 7. Some of the Schaumburg events will be on Zoom and ACB Media, but many will be in-person only and or podcasted for later listening. Pre-registration for the convention is $35 per person for ACB members, $50 for non-members, and is available through June 16. Once registration opens in Schomburg, the fee is $45 for members and $60 for non-members. The Kentucky Council of the Blind wants our members to take part in the national convention. KCB will reimburse the $35 pre-registration fee to any member who registers for the convention. Reimbursements will be paid by check following the closing of the convention. For any KCB member who goes to Schomburg, KCB will pay up to seven nights in the hotel, based on double occupancy, two people to a room. To take advantage of this offer, you must contact us right away so that we can make your reservation for you. Call us at 502-895-4598. Make sure you get all of the latest news and details about the convention by subscribing to the ACB Convention list. Send a blank email message to ACB Convention. put a plus sign, and then the word subscribe at O R G. The South Central Kentucky Council of the Blind invites you to its social hour each Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. Central Time. That's 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern on its Zoom line. Join the call by dialing 669-900-6833 and entering the code 763-689-4411. The passcode, should you need it, is 25852. The Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will hold its June business meeting on the KCB Zoom line at 669-900-6833, and the code is 862 That meeting will be on Wednesday, June 7 at 8 p.m. The meeting is open, and all are welcome. KCB Next Generation will hold its June business meeting on Thursday, June 8 at 8 p.m. on the KCB Zoom line. For more information about the Next Generation chapter, contact Joey Couch, Next Gen President, at 606-216-8033. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will hold its last two roundabouts before the ACB convention break on Friday, June 9, and Friday, June 16. The June 9 roundabout will be virtual from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the KCB Zoom line, and the June 16 roundabout will be hybrid with dinner at 5, activities at 6, and a program both in-person and Zoom from 7 to 9. Watch the KCB events list for more information on the topics for these roundabouts. The Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will hold its next in-person Low Vision Support Group from 1 to 2.30 p.m. on Monday, June 12, at the United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 South State Street in Louisville. All are welcome to attend. The Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired in Owensboro will have its June meeting on Tuesday, June 13, from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time, at the Wesleyan Heights United Methodist Church on Sherm Road in Owensboro. Savvy meetings are also broadcast on Zoom on the KCB Zoom line. For more information about the meeting or about Savvy, call Scott Heads, Savvy President, at 270-925-0123, Rick Bogus, Savvy Secretary, at 270-684-4418, or share a lot savvy immediate past president at six eight six eight six eight nine her area code of course is also 270. the next meeting of the tri-state library users book club will be on saturday june 17 at 11 a.m eastern time on the kcb zoom line the book on the agenda is remarkably bright creatures by shelby van pelt published in 2022 This book tells the story of Marcellus, a giant octopus, who is being held captive at a public aquarium. Told from his perspective, we learn how he formed a relationship with a human who discovered his amazing potential. Available from Bard in audio, DB107924 and in braille 24204. It takes 11 hours and 20 minutes to read, so you have just enough time to get started and have it done by the 17th. The monthly Tri-State Library Users Business Meeting will follow the book discussion. Tri-State Library Users is a chapter of both the Kentucky Council of the Blind and the Library Users of America. The book club and business meeting will be held on the KCB Zoom line. Ever wonder how those wonderful, delicious, delectable truffles are made? Come join the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind on Saturday, June 17, from 2 to 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time at the Kenton County Library, 502 Scott Boulevard in Covington, and learn how to make truffles. The cost is $25, but you can choose six flavors, or you can choose any flavor you want and make six truffles. Hope everyone will be able to make it. The deadline to sign up for this truffle making class is Monday, June 12th. Please send an email to Jerry Slusher at jerryslusher7 at gmail.com. That's spelled G E R R Y S L U S H E R 7 at gmail.com. The following article is from Bing News and from WDRB-TV, Channel 41, and was posted on Tuesday, May 30, 2023. The headline is, American Printing House for the Blind Breaks Ground on $55 Million Museum Expansion in Louisville. Louisville, Kentucky, WDRB. The American Printing House for the Blind broke ground Monday on a massive expansion to its Clifton campus, paying homage to the nonprofit's history and commitment to Braille. Set to open in 2025, the new Dot Experience Museum will be 28,000 square feet, nearly five times the size of the existing museum. Quote We as a Board of Trustees decided to set the standard and create the most accessible museum in the world said Phoebe Wood, chair of the APH Board of Trustees. The dot name pays homage to Braille, a series of six dots that are the backbone of communication for the visually impaired. In total, the project will cost $55 million, and APH is in the process of raising $15 million toward that total from corporate, individual, and philanthropic sources. Among the additions to the museum will be Stevie Wonder's piano, Helen Keller's desk, and the stories of many visually impaired people throughout history, including NASA employee Dana Lambert, who was born with congenital cataracts. When I go to museums or centers, I have to explain the experience to my son, Lambert said Monday but i cannot do that if the experience of blind people is not something in mind" End of quote. aph said though museums have made progress in recent years to reach visually impaired visitors many of those efforts are catered to one audience or centered around just one area of a museum the dot experience aph said will focus on inclusion, accessibility, and innovation, embracing the expression, nothing about us without us, in a comprehensive way, through first-person stories of blind and low-vision individuals, and through intentional involvement of the blindness community at every level of the project. Today is the day all of the planning and research comes together. Dr. Craig Meter, president of APH, said in a news release Monday, quote, We know the DOT experience will be a leader when it comes to accessibility for all. It will be an amazing opportunity to highlight the history of blindness and low vision with a focus on the trailblazers of the past, present, and our hope is that it will inspire the future, end of quote. APH said it worked with Solid Light, a louisville design firm, to lay out plans for the dot experience. Quote, from the galleries to the reimagined manufacturing tour, this new inclusive visitor experience will elevate the standard for access in the museum industry and beyond. Cynthia Torp, owner and CEO of Solid Light, said in a news release on Monday. The renovation will also improve offices and buildings currently on the APH campus on Frankfurt Avenue. Quote, The museum is going to provide those role models to young blind kids to say, I am going to be that when I grow up, said Lambert. Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg, Kentucky First Lady Brittany Bashir, and Kentucky Senator Gerald Neal were among those in attendance at Monday's ceremony. Now that you've heard the news story about the American Printing House for the Blind, we want to fill in some of the details and let you hear a very special part of the festivities. Here's the scoop. For quite some time, the Printing House has been moving offices, putting things in storage, and generally preparing for the massive construction project outlined in the story about the dot experience. Everything in the current museum has been moved from the area and stored away, and a totally new museum is part of the new construction at the front of the property. The beginning of this project was celebrated with a reverse ribbon-cutting ceremony on Monday, May 28. It was a perfect, sunny, cool spring morning, and a crowd gathered on the APH lawn shortly before 10 a.m. to celebrate. Dignitaries spoke, including Kentucky First Lady Brittany Bashir, the Mayor of Louisville, a representative from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's office, Kentucky 3rd District Congressman McGarvey, and many others. Many of us donned hard hats and tossed out a celebratory shovel of dirt. Cookies decorated with a six-dot braille cell were distributed, along with little magnets to commemorate the day. But there was another part of the special day as well. A by-invitation-only breakfast and program took place inside APH in the Old Museum, beginning at 8.15 a.m. Adam and I were honored to be invited, and it was a wonderful experience. On page 2, you can listen to the program presented in the museum that morning, which was the last official activity in that location. The museum and the entire printing house closed to the public on Friday, June 2, and the new dot experience will open in 2025 after the construction is completed. The American Printing House will, of course, continue to manufacture products and produce books during the next two years, but there will be no tours, museum programs, etc. We hope you enjoy the program on page two. Listen to Soundprints each week on ACB Media 1, the mainstream channel. Our broadcast times are Sunday at 8 p.m., Monday at 8 a.m., Tuesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., Wednesday at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., Thursday at 10 p.m., and Friday at 1 a.m., 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Listen on your Victor Reader stream or on the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Listen anytime, 24 hours a day, on the KCB information line, by calling 773-572-6318. And by the way, you can also hear a copy of our latest newsletter on our information line. For more information about SoundPrints and to request a free subscription on CD playable on any standard CD player, call KCB at 502-895-4598. Page two. If I could get
1: your all's attention, I want to thank everybody for coming. i on uh, slick pants. I love saying this. Uh, good morning. My name is Mike Hudson. I'm the director of the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind. <laughs> <Woo! laughs> so I want to thank you, all of you, for joining us here on our big day at APH. Uh, I especially want to thank Lisa Eschner and her team in advancement for all their help uh, and work getting us to this point, providing for the wonderful breakfast that we had. And, and let's give a hand to Lisa and her team. Thank you all for that. So, um, so, last June, uh, as our museum educator, uh, Katie Carpenter, was pulling together our FY23 education program, we knew we wanted to do something, right, to commemorate, to celebrate to observe the temporary closing of the museum for renovation and construction. Now back then, what, we, what had evolved over the last five years into something that we called the evil plan.
2: <laughs> because
1: mostly we were not allowed to talk about it outside the company and sometimes not inside the company. This evil plan called for us to close in January of 2023. Now, we always celebrate Louis Braille's January 4th birthday that month, so we thought we'd do something about right about then. And while I'd like to say that our program ideas are always the result of months of careful planning, in this case, Katie just poked her head into my office and said, What are we going to do for, you know, what are we going to do? And in about 30 seconds, we came up with this idea of turning the traditional ribbon cutting ceremony, where you tie the ribbon, uh, where you cut the ribbon, into something where you A formal ceremony where we tie the ribbon back together. So that's why we call it a reverse ribbon cutting. And if we're going to close this place down right, we thought it would be a lot of fun to invite the folks who helped put it together to join us. And here you all are. And we're so thrilled to have you with us. So, um, and Craig could go into this at length, but supply chain issues and planning delays and other stuff have intervened. And the thing just kept getting pushed back, a month here, a month there, until here we are. Are you sure it's not a year here, a year there? Thank you, Carol. So finally, finally, the first big day of many big days ahead of us, the big day is here. And this morning, before we walk out to sink a shovel into the project that's going to become the dot experience at APH, this morning... We're going to walk back into the misty portal that is the past to celebrate how it all began. And this wonderful cast of characters up here is going to help me do it. So let's start with the big question. One I'm pretty sure lots of people who are at APH have wondered before. Why would a national corporation, the largest maker of educational products for people who are blind in the world, a nonprofit, why? in the heck would they start a museum? (laughs) So let's start out with one of the two people in the world who's best suited to answer that question. Down at the end, uh, my my right, your left, Mary Nell McLennan. Mary Nell joined APH in 1982, I believe, as the braille editor and became director of our company's newly formed Department of Educational and Advisory Services in 1988 and the Vice President of Products and Services in 1997. So, Mac, why do we have a museum? How did this thing get started?
3: Well, uh, there, there are lots of stories about this, and I, but I'm going to share with you all um, some writing I went back and found in an old journal of mine. And I copied it into here just so I could read you a little bit of why we found it Important, and we found it significant, and we found it heartwarming to find these old things. So I'll read. Why was I, am I passionate about old things in the APH Museum? Oh, I'll cry, so don't worry, people. That's not in the journal. Um, but uh, I cry easily at significant things. So I wrote, even as a kid, I was fascinated by old things especially common, everyday, practical items that years earlier a person or people, individual people, handled, used, cared for, or even took for granted as unremarkable. Things like a breadboard, wooden and handmade, or a rolling pin, a hammer or a plane or a carpenter's rule, a box of buttons or a fabric pincushion, a footstool, or a paperweight, or an inkwell, a coffee pot, a rake, a plow. The same fascination and respect has held my attention and my heart since I left the Tennessee School for the Blind as a teacher and moved my life to APH. I ask myself about each of these things. Who bought these objects? Who built it or made it? Where did it come from? How did they get it? Who used it or swore at it or loved it? Who brought it here? What did people think of it when they first used it? Did they say, well, I don't like this change? This is a kind of object genealogy that warms my heart. It can include the, now this is, that was the end of the journal. But then I wrote. (laughs) It can include the tools that Jake Steffen used to create these machines he made here in in the printing house. The hammers that our Braille stereograph operators used to erase a wayward dot on a brass embossing plate. Or that huge camera that Mike Cornell used to photograph a print page so the staff of large print could enlarge it and turn it into... A large print book. We got
1: rid of that camera, Mary. Now, um,
3: it was a fascinating. I bet it was. It was huge. I could step into it. Um, of course, I'm short, but not that short. And then I ended with the little homemade wooden footrest that braille proofreaders used while proofreading or holding copy for endless hours every day. So that's kind of how I came to this about loving old things. You too, Tinsley. Um, Sorry. But so I I naturally came here with this appreciation for things that had gone on and been used and that are usually overlooked as just mundane. But, um, and I named some of those things. But one story even predates Tuck here. And that was when uh, I came first. I was here in 82, and you came in 89? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. So <clears throat> there was an old roll-top desk that sat on the main Braille floor, and it had been used by the supervisor. and Some of you may remember it. And it was a roll-top desk, and it had all sorts of little pieces of paper still taped to it. It was... Uh, it had lots of nicks and scratches, and then suddenly, that desk disappeared from the Braille floor. And you know, we kind of noticed, but thought it had been moved. And um, and I'm going to eliminate some names, but um, we noticed it was no longer where it had been for decades. I mean, decades. And then. Um, One of us in this room today sneaked to my office, which at that point was on the second floor, and came to me and said, just so you know, the old roll-top desk has been moved into salvage and scrap, and one person here, (laughs) there he is, (laughs) one person here has um, (coughs) spoken that he, he wants it. He's going to take it. So I thought about that, and I, I was really appalled that we could be losing something that had been here since the early 1900s or earlier. So this, as a young thing, I marched right up to Dr. Novelin's office and asked if I could talk. And, of course, he said yes. And I told him what was going on and who had moved it and where it was going to go, which was outside the printing house to someone's home. And I just said, I, you know, we have such history, and this is a part of it. This is ours. This shouldn't be in someone's home. This belongs to the people. And Dr. Nolan listened. And a few days later, he called me to his office and said, "The desk is safe."
2: <laughs>
3: so that was the the beginning of finding some of these things and saving them. Um, and then. Uh, One more quick story, and I know Tuck's going to mention it, but these beautiful certificates, the one from Germany in 1873 and and the World's Fair in uh, late um, 1892, uh, were stored in the attic portion that was above the elevator, and you had to climb up a straight-up wooden ladder that was built onto the wall. And... Those were up there, um, covered in dust, stacked, not protected in any way. And Scott Blom and I were looking for something. I don't even know what we went up there for. But we were sent on a mission, I think Ralph McRacken (laughs) told us to go up there and get something or see if it was up there. And we found those certificates, um, which Tuck later came across as well. So that's how it started. And it started with um, a passion and Pat Campbell who was the director of uh, development, and I had long shared this love of old things and love of how we got where we are because that's how we will get farther.
1: So you started gathering things together.
3: So we were, yeah, we were just saving And stuff. Carl
1: Lapin had saved a bunch of books.
3: Carl Lapin had saved a lot. And one of the things that we always coveted was that Braille ashtray that sat on his oh. desk. And uh-huh. that was no. when you could... When <laughs> you could still smoke in the office. So. You, you know
1: that you can get those for like five dollars on eBay. I
3: know you. Can, I know you. Can. In fact, I have a collection. I have to break
1: surprises. people's hearts all the time and tell them that you know that's not that rare, right? No, but
3: right, but it, at that point we didn't know. Yeah, that. you didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: so so you start gathering things together, but then you've got to get. Okay, so that's fine, right? We're going to gather some stuff together, but now you've got to get some support from leadership, right? That's And that's right. where Tuck comes into the story, right? So, so Dr. Tinsley, uh, <laughs> Tuck Tinsley returns to his home state of Kentucky in 1989, where you became the seventh president of the American Printing House for the Blind after serving as a teacher, principal, and interim superintendent at the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind in St. Augustine. So, Tuck, I've always heard that when you first heard about this idea, you were not a big fan. Like, you were pretty skeptical of this whole museum idea. Is that true? Or what you know, what, what did you think when these ladies came to you with this idea?
4: Hey, let's put on a show. Uh, well, I, I was. Uh, a I started as a math teacher. So I wrote everything down uh, that, my thought, my thoughts. Where do I start right now? This is uh, where I start. Who bought, oh. Uh, <laughs> the, uh. When I came in 89, my family, I came in February of 89, my family stayed in Florida to finish the school year. So I I was here until eight, nine at night, and uh, early on when I was here, security guard's name was Popeye, and uh, Popeye came in and said, uh, he said, you know, uh, there's some stuff above the elevator shaft. Uh, you may want to look at it. So we went up there about nine thirty one one night. <clears throat> you get to the top by climbing a ladder, and you can't stand up.
3: There's no, no had light. a
4: flashlight. There's no light, so I had a flashlight. And we, we unrolled one thing that said Chicago World's Fair and mm-hmm. whatever year, yes. work of the show. Yes. I said, whoa. So... the. Um, then other things were found and so forth um Mary Nell and Pat Campbell and a bunch of them came in and said yo we got all these things we ought to we ought to do something with them or start a museum so in my mind I had a grand idea and that was we get two 2 by 4 foot folding tables and put them <laughs> Put them down in the lobby, and when special tours come through, they can look at it. And you put them away. So that was that was my idea. Yeah. 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 And uh, and it got out of hand after that. It
1: did. My phone is ringing, so I'm going to get rid of it.
3: <laughs> well, and we said, well, that's a place to start. And I don't know if you remember this, but. In order to uh, further his thinking, uh, in that room that used to be a studio, and I'm pointing to the room where the breakfast is served, um, we invited Tuck to come to coffee and, and some munchies, and I made chocolate raspberry hearts, and Ooh. we had coffee in there, and continued to promote the idea of both of the museum and of the Insights art, which we were yeah. pushing yeah. at the time, too. Yeah.
1: So so Tuck, the, the chair of the board at the time was John Barr, right? So what did the board think when, when you all came with this idea of you know we're this company, let's let's make a museum.
4: Uh, you you say John Barr, uh Dr. Barr, Charlie Barr is on the board now. And uh Dr. Barr uh or Charlie Barr, not Charlie Barr, John Barr, his father, uh was in the hospital. And I heard he was, so I thought I'd run down and step in and say hi to him. I hadn't been here long, so I uh, went in the room, and he looked at me and said, uh, what are you doing here, cowboy? You ought to be running that show back there. <laughs> that, that was, he was more practical than I was. <laughs> so uh, he, the, uh, the presentation couldn't be made by me to the board of what we needed, and uh, you, you, I had one lady on the board, there was the first female board member, Yes, was Virginia Keeney, mm-hmm. Dr. Keeney, and she was a wonderful, wonderful she lady. Was. Um As a matter of fact, she and her husband, Art, uh, both uh, ophthalmologists, uh, they named a position, University of Louisville, and Charlie Barr, Dr. Barr, now is in that position, is retiring in about four months. But uh, Dr. Keeney was the one I went to and said, yeah, yeah there could be something nice done and so forth. And So uh, then Pat Campbell and, and uh, Mary Nail started planning, and I stayed in my office. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So that was probably a good idea. At some point, you, you, you needed to bring in a professional, right? Because, I mean, it's kind of the APH way, right? right? We're, we're always using consultants right. when we're doing something that we don't know anything about. Right. So you had to hire somebody, and you found a young we, lady. We,
4: we, uh, we, Carol, well, Pat uh, Campbell, uh, I think she knew you before, Carol, did she not? No. She didn't. No. <laughs> uh, she and Mary Nell led us search, and we found this wonderful lady uh, to my left who took the next steps.
1: So, I feel like I've known Carol all my life, really. All my professional life, I definitely have. I think I first met you at a meeting of the Kentucky Association of Museums in 1987 when you were working at the Louisville Visual Art Association. Would that be about right? And so, Carol, I'm guessing that you knew nothing about blindness when you interviewed. Am I right? You're right. Yeah. So what were your first thoughts when you arrived and you saw they had this stack of two tables and, you know, a bunch of crap? <laughs> and there were wires hanging down the ceiling, and it looked like a bomb had gone off, right? right, right. No, I've no. seen pictures, so I know what it looked you like. You know what it
5: looked like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that whole room was just, well, it was, there was nothing in it but these old machines. And then over here yes, in the it's back awesome. by the windows were these piles of books,
2: Yeah. old yeah. books.
5: old books old old tackle books yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so when i started reading i just had to start reading about the history right and then when i did that i said you know this first book that was uh, printed in raised letters looks like the one that's sitting back in the corner under all those other books so (laughs) it was (laughs) so then we found all of the the old one, so that was pretty exciting. So
1: there, in the stack, is one of Valentina Awe's right. original 1786 right. essay on education for the blind, the mm-hmm. first tactile book made for blind readers in the history of the world. Right,
5: it was in a pile, right? And over it was there. it was in a
1: stack between <laughs> math three <laughs> well. and sociology seven, pretty right? <laughs> yeah. So so what, what what was the process? What did you go? How'd you go about you know turning what was just a stack of stuff into a museum?
5: Well, when you when I started reading about the history of the education of blind people, you realize, you know, the steps and what they what they needed for education, and then then the materials and the the uh, instruments that, and so uh, then we started finding all those little slates and little crude inventions and things that are so important in that history.
1: All this stuff had just kind of washed up at APh. Mm-hmm. But, but the, well, there, uh,
5: the other schools had some too, and they, you know, they. So you had to
1: reach outside. Our, oh yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. So how did that go? Did what did people? Did they? Did they go? Yeah. Oh, immediately come get my stuff or?
5: No, <laughs> no. Some of them had museums. Who and, are uh, you? Uh, They're you all know, still in their own business. Some did, and then there was eBay came along.
1: Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I knew you were a big fan of eBay. Uh
5: huh. Yeah. So I could put in. I had to put in for the blind keywords because if you didn't, you got Venetian blinds. So I I found that out. So I found some things before people, you know, got too, right, precious about things. So, yeah, so we did find some
1: things. So who did you work with to do the design?
5: The design, um, well, first um, we had the architects come in to do that. And then John Grossman and his people. Well, when we uncovered that, post there it was it was blocked in that, that column was blocked in in the architecture and when we uncovered it we found that it had a uh, marble marble service so we restored uh-huh. that and then then the architects decided that uh you know decided to make that a focal point and so uh-huh. they put the the circle around it, and then they they ran these um uh, Braille columns that kind of circle, yeah, the echo, that echo, circle echo that, and they show up in there. weird places. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Just wherever through they through, pierce. Young, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're threading through, you know, and that's that's the focal point.
1: That's and this, the these rooms the were in really bad shape and had to be totally rehabilitated.
4: Michael, Michael uh, John Grossman's here. John, yeah.
1: you yeah. stand up just yeah. a second. <laughs> yeah, stand, stand up, up, sir. <laughs> So, so very unique design, very original design. But this this room, when you look at the photographs of what it looked like before they remodeled it, it was it was just a really rough and tumble oh, industrial no, no, structure. The yeah, factory, yeah, it was no. a factory yeah, floor.
3: Yeah, it was a factory floor. Well, if I can interrupt, um, those of you that were around back then probably remember that all of this area was the old manual stereograph. This is where Braille was typed out on those old manual stereograph machines mm-hmm. for decades. Okay. So after um, Ralph McCracken and, and I was fortunate enough to get to help him do that, we um, instant worked with Triformations in Florida, and we changed the manual, old manual stereograph to a computer-driven. Yeah. So that was then moved to another part of the, com- of the company in the mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. And, but the IBM machines were over on the area where your office is mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. when all of this was used for braille transcription. Gotcha. So
1: suddenly, though, all the departments that were in here had been moved out,
3: and it which means nobody, and it nobody
1: was... laid claim to it. And as we know at APH, <laughs> if nobody owns it, it's fair game, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. So, so Carol, you you guys had to hire a designer for the exhibits, though,
5: right? Yes, and so we interviewed several, and then. Um, mm-hmm. 1220 in Nashville were the ones that we picked, and, right. uh, and Miriam Owen um, was the principal designer on right. that. And so, and so
1: Miriam is in Italy today, God, Miriam. and she sends her regrets, but not really, she's in Italy,
2: yes. but
1: her and Steve are in Italy. So yeah, we, we actually developed a relationship with mm-hmm. Miriam that, I mean, she did most of the work in the Hall of Fame, and uh, yeah, yeah we, we, we had a relationship right. with her for a long so, time after uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then you started building the collection.
5: That's right, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah.
1: And um, yeah. Um, you retired in 2005, mm-hmm. and that's where I come into the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so the staff, when I started, was me and uh, Ann Rich was the collections manager, and Brenna, kind of, right? But then Brenna White uh, sat back in the back and scanned photographs. And now Brenna works at the Filson Club, and she's all and um, uh, Raymond Randalls who had been the studio uh, director here at APH had retired and he had come back as our oral history uh, uh, manager and uh, uh, if you if you if you look back at uh, at uh, Raymond's oral histories you'll know that he was always really interested in the cafeteria downstairs and so everybody gets asked everybody gets asked about the cafeteria oh, really? so like I mean, it's a really great resource on cafeteria history, um, and, and lots of other things. I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but because Raymond was a, a wonderful gentleman, and he just passed this last year, um, and then we had a part-time lady who was transcribing oral history interviews. It was really small. Um, staff. Uh, our HR department at the time was in love with part-time positions that didn't pay any yeah. benefits, but that's a story for another day. Uh, so, so, I had been working in collections at the Kentucky Historical Society, and when I got there, uh, it seemed like Carol had done just this magnificent job of assembling this amazing, nationally significant collection, and you had created the collections management system, and we had a, a computerized database uh, uh, to, to, to keep track of everything. Really beautiful exhibits that everybody enjoyed a lot. But there wasn't a lot of educational programming. Would you agree with that? Right. Yeah. So, so, so um, while we were open on Saturdays, nobody was coming on Saturdays. Yeah. And my boss at the time, he's sitting back there somewhere, Gary Mudd, uh-huh. was hinting yeah. that if we didn't get our visitation up, that something was going to have to give, right? So one of the first things I did was that Brenna left to go off and, and, and go back to school. So we converted her position to a museum education position. And uh, Rachel Goodman was the first person we hired. But when Rachel found another full-time job here at APH, which that happens a lot too, uh, we hired Katie Carpenter, who's somewhere here in the room. And um, so, 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 so Katie... Katie had been working at some tree museum and and at the home place at Land Between the Lakes, but she'd also been a middle school teacher in Murray. And we've put all that experience to good use, haven't we, Katie? We have. Uh, So I think it all started, our education programs, with a little program that Ann Rich gave called Make a Picture for Your Fingertips. uh, Where where we basically had the kids do a a craft project using tactile materials. And then we started doing what Roberta and I called, Roberta Williams, who's also back there, started calling throwing spaghetti against the wall, right? (laughs) Where we tried various things to see if people liked them or if the Courier Journal would report on them, right? (laughs) Because back in those days, and do you you find yourself going back in those days? (laughs) When you find yourself talking that way? (laughs) Yeah, anyways... (laughs) So we we tried various things, see if people like them, if the the CJ would report them. But back in those days, if you made the CJ's Kenny and the Kids feature on Friday, you were guaranteed an audience, right? So we tried a Braille story hour, and Carla Rushville, who's back there, uh, was one of our first readers. Uh, Carly, you didn't read Harry Potter. You read something from the Chronicles of Narnia, just, remi- just reminding you of that. So then we tried tactile mask-making at Halloween and tactile Christmas cards at Christmas, and we went to teacher conferences that nobody came to, and we went to the <laughs> state fair, and we taught legions and legions of kids to write their name in Braille. But none of that was moving the needle very much until we stumbled across this thing we called bards and storytellers where we celebrated the musical traditions that are rife within the Brown community. So that first summer of 2006, we had a program with rocker Turley Richards, uh, who was a local guy who had some success in the 60s and 70s, and champion bluegrass fiddler Michael Cleveland, and a storyteller from Arizona named Kathy Klaus. We packed 75 people in here for that Michael Cleveland program. And probably the fire marshal would have frowned on that. (laughs) But I think it's safe to say that Tuck and Gary and the folks at APH started to take notice and see that their little museum had some possibilities. And over the past few years, we've averaged about 40 educational programs a year, and it's a big part of what we do now. But the best idea we had, and uh, Roberta and Katie and I can't remember exactly who came up with it, we, we, we definitely came out of a meeting we were all three at. One of us came up with it. I don't remember. But we called it Braille Reader's Theater. So, so, so yeah, we're brilliant, right? So we, th- we thought we wanted a program that would show the broader community, the sighted community. This is what we thought we wanted, right? We thought we wanted a program that would show the broader community, the sighted community, how flexible and effective and elegant Braille is as a reading medium. (laughs) And we got that, okay. But we actually stumbled across an even greater problem, and that is a lack of community theater opportunities for people who are blind or low vision. And that first play that we tackled was, duh, The Miracle (laughs) Worker, right? (laughs) So the first time we ran it, right, Katie? It was supposed to be a matinee with the following performance, right? But the matinee ran for three and a half hours, and midway through the third act, I had to go out into the lobby and tell everybody that waiting that was waiting there to hit the bricks,
2: because
1: well, just because, right? Uh, our actors needed to eat and drink and have a life, right? So, so our Annie Sullivan that day was played by my friend here, who was sitting beside me, Barbara Hennett. So, 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 so. so so, so Barb, I think you've been in every show. Am I right? You've been in every show. Yeah. Yes. Some yes. Of brother, yes. So, <laughs> yes. so, uh, talk about that first show. Uh, what is your favorite yes. character that you've gotten to play? Uh
6: my favorite character that I got in the play. Yeah,
1: I'm gonna. I'm, I already know what it is, so you could tell me.
6: Uh, well, my favorite character that I got into play, of course, was Annie Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> And it happened, um, well, Katie Carpenter asked me, she contacted me. We, uh, we had been introduced, um, well, a couple other programs introduced yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so she came over to my house and brings this script with her. And she says, you know, Barb, she said, I think you can play Annie Sullivan. I'm like, what? How do you know? And, well, I just think you can so read, read a little bit for me. Will you? So I was reading it, and boy, I was really green. I didn't have any kind of clue. And then, then she started to cry, and I said, oh, well, i did something wrong. <laughs> and uh, so we were, we were reading different parts in the script. And she said, well, you want to do it? And I said, well, yes, absolutely, I want to do it. And, and so that, that got that whole thing started. Um, so why do you think yeah. why, why do
1: you think you guys have had so much fun? Why why have you done it every year? Why, what's
6: what's well, going on? Well, okay, so um, I I think it is because of the freedom that we um, are given to be something other than who we are, and we're not boxed into copies that people make us into. Mm-hmm. Um, when I uh, began the journey of of, of uh, playing the character of Ann Sullivan, it was such an opportunity that I didn't even know what it would do to me. And, and when we had started this and when I was taking this journey and I was going through all of her emotional things, it touched a lot of things in me mm-hmm. that had been laying dormant. And after it was over... There was this grief that came over me, and I thought, you know, this can't be all there is to this, you know, what are, can't, can't we do this again? I
1: remember that moment. I mean, I remember we're, we're sitting, and of course, I'm wanting to give notes, right?
6: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Show's was, over. I'm wanting to give notes, but yes. um, uh, yeah, there was this, gosh, is that all there is, right? Yeah. And yeah, so, um, and you also were in our Bards and Storytellers series. Yes, I was. Yeah. yeah, that was a long time ago.
6: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you, you are a, a, also a, a quite an accomplished violinist.
6: Thank you. And yes. you
1: sound a little bit about like Karen Carpenter when you want to.
6: Thank you. You're that was all. my pleasure. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so so um,
1: so, talk a little bit about. So you all are, are doing another play this this year. What? Tell us a
6: little oh. bit about it. Oh Beetie wrote it. Oh my God! Yes, yeah, brilliant. So it's BT. an original play. Yes, definitely original. Oh, this. What's different about this play is that he entrusted um, Terry and myself to take the journey with him as he was creating this play and how it was going to roll out.
1: Your workshop in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And
6: oh my! I mean, I'm sorry. I'm just so excited about this because what a what a journey. It is to go with this brilliant mind who is, you know, constantly creating these things, and try out the his the lines that he wrote uh, at, in our characters. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, Fanny Crosby and yeah. Phoebe Knapp.
1: And so Fanny um, Crosby is this famous lady who wrote all these hymns. Yes. And yet she's largely forgotten by time. And yeah. there are a lot of characters like that in the whole history of education for the blind. A lot of. Really, people who are famous in their day and are now forgotten.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I uh, I feel like I, I I was thinking about what I would do if I were asked to talk, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, do I get real crazy and say a sentence or two in each character that I play? <laughs> Which I kind of liked, but I thought, well, I don't want to, I mean, I don't know how much time we've gotten all this. But I, but uh, so the characters that I've played have been so diverse. Yeah. I went from playing Annie Sullivan yeah. uh, in The Miracle Worker yeah. to going to Lady Hero, mm-hmm. in Much Ado About Nothing in mm-hmm. Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, she was supposedly a minor character, um, but again, I... I was getting a whole lot more. There are no minor characters. There are no minor characters There's in Shakespeare. minor and actors. So then we go to uh, <laughs> the next year, um, which was uh, 2014. We did a comedy play, which was written in the 50s, The Curious yeah. Savage. Yeah. And I was um, Ethel P. Savage. No, um, I think it was Ethel. Because I would have said, said it wrong. And I said, no, I am not. I think it was Ethel P. Savage.
1: So, Barb, would you say it's safe to say that... Um, you all, once we started doing it, the whole idea of just like let's sit in front of the room and read braille, you all blew that out of the water, right? Because what you really <laughs> wanted was more. You really wanted to do more theater. You wanted yes, costumes. You yes. wanted blocking. You wanted. Yes. And Mike was tugging back the whole way, right? Keep trying to wow. keep it from getting too big. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. But you
1: guys are awesome. <laughs> I want to thank you for all the plays you guys have done. Yes. So. Okay. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you. <laughs> thank, all. thank you very thank much. You Barb. Yes. <laughs> So um, so one other thing, and, and Marissa, unfortunately, wasn't able to be with us, but another thing that the museum became known for locally was for our paid summer internships. Mm-hmm. And, and Carol, and when Carol was director, we had these uh, folks that came in from the Yale University through the Bluegrass and the Bulldogs program, but then later we added up our own... Uh, Paid interns that we usually hire through the University of Louisville's public history program, and the interns lead tours and each have their own project working in collections. We have another intern uh, this summer that's going to be working on our uh, on our uh, kind of kind of the classic videos and stuff that uh, APH has shot. Um, so it's another thing that you know we kind of became known for. When you're you know a college student getting a paid internship is a pretty big deal. So that kind of leads us up. To the events that led up to Dr. Metter and Anne Lancaster sitting in the back and myself sitting at a table in front of APH, cooking up the basics of the evil plan. Ah. Now, now, now I'm probably exaggerating my own role in it. It was really Ann and, 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 and Craig, but but I don't exaggerate the work that Carol and myself and many others here at APH have done to establish our museum as the stewards the national stewards of the story of education and rehabilitation for folks who are blind or low vision. And that trust that we have established was illustrated by um, you know the loans that you got from Perkins, uh, your ability to go to the schools for the blind and get things sent to us, Also, by the transfer of the AER, Orientational Mobility Division, Bledsoe Archives, APH, in 2007. And many thanks to uh, the help of Mary Nell's late husband, Rick Welsh, for that. And and, and Mary Nell could tell stories about us going over to the Maryland School for the Blind with a... With a truck and and backing it up, er, 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 fill it up, boys. Um,
3: in July, in an unair conditioned. And that was not
1: air conditioned. Yeah. Hey, we had to go through tough conditions, Mary. Uh, now, then, then, we got the Braille Authority of North America, uh, the Banna Archive in 2008, uh, the AFB Miguel Library Collection in 2009, the Father Thomas Carroll Papers from the Catholic Guild in 2014. The AER archive, the General Archive in two thousand nineteen, and the Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Association Archive in twenty twenty one. But yeah, thank you. Thank uh, you. But but Craig and Ann and I were sitting on that table out front, not because of those collections, but because it looked very likely that the American Foundation for the Blind was going to choose APH to partner with to store and care for and exhibit the AFB Helen Keller Archive. And it was a great day when we finally signed that agreement in 2019 that guarantees that the Keller Archive, which contains hundreds of thousands of artifacts, photographs, publications, manuscripts, letters, and recordings, is going to stay at APH, fulfilling the expressed wishes of both Helen Keller and her teacher, Annie Sullivan, that their collections be exhibited to the public in a museum. And so here we are. What a day. We're about to begin something completely new and very ambitious. We're about to break some barriers. We're about to believe in our dreams. We're about to fight for access for all. And we're about to tell some dang good stories. (laughs) And the end of the beginning, Craig, to to paraphrase Winston Churchill starts this morning when so many of our friends are going to help us turn a few symbol, uh, shovels of symbolic dirt. Now, we don't get here without the dreams of a lot of people, people who saved a few things along the way, like Carl and Mary Nell and Pat, and leaders who saw possibilities in crazy ideas. when every instinct probably told them to say, no, Mary Nell, see what you've done to me? Uh, like Tuck... <laughs> and John Barr, and Gary Mudd, and Bob Brasher, and Bill Bevan and Jack Decker, and Don Keefe. And key staffers like Carol Toby, and Roberta Williams, and Ann Rich, and Nancy Lacewell, and Katie Carpenter, and Scott Blome, and Malcolm Turner, and Robert Conahan, and Johnny Z, and Ricky Irvin, and all the guys in maintenance who help uh, keep us everything running. And the folks in housekeeping who keep things needs a pin. And key friends in the community like Adam and Carla Rushival and Kathy Jackson and so many others who are here I can't name, and all of our education associates and the casts of our BRT events and so many others. A lot of work has prepared the way for today. Now, let's all go out onto the lawn and enjoy it. Thank you all very much.
0: If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org.